Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Mikhail Samanov of Two Centuries Investments. Just like the name of the firm, he's extended the value back test all the way back to 1825. Uh, we're going to talk when Vanderbilt got his steamships, when Charles Babbage invented the difference machine, when value outperforms, how it draws down right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Yeah, so maybe you could tell me a little bit about uh, why you did this research because I, I, as we were discussing earlier, I, I saw your momentum research uh, looking back over two centuries of momentum, thought it was absolutely fascinating, was really hoping somebody would do it for value and so I was really excited when you did it. I think the first time I saw it was just after you published in May. So you've taken, you've taken several different data sets and you've knitted them together and now you've got data for the value factor going back to 1825. So what, what inspired the research project and where did you track down the data? Yeah, the inspiration actually goes all the way back with the long run investing, actually just long run in general. I was in all the way undergrad and my macro professor who is a founder of this development uh, theory at Brown University, he posed the question to our class, uh, why is there no single economic model that explains 20 centuries of growth and the first 17th centuries is basically zero growth one model explains it Matthews and then we have the solar growth model for the next 300 years but you know there's no complete model that explains both I was fascinated that you can just ask questions like this and it became my thesis and I we invented this whole method about evolution and how it preference different uh, duration of life in before revolution industrial revolution after based on knowledge transfer and, and work, uh, physical work, et cetera. And he continued publishing books on this topic. And I walked away just feeling that science is not just about cramming you know, equations into your head, but you can actually ask really cool questions and then answer them. And then also this idea of long-term really fascinated me. Um, then fast forward 2007, I'm at Wharton uh, Business School. I'm also a quant on Wall Street doing factor stuff, which we call now factor investing. And I look at Jeremy Siegel's book and that breathtaking graph of stocks and inflation and bonds of 200 years. You know, for me especially, it's like very aesthetically pleasing to see human history and finance all in one picture. And also growing up in Soviet Union, where you have like every decade a complete wipeout in currency, stocks and bonds and everything, seeing this magic compounding, you can just sit back and passively compound your wealth. Too good to be true. And it was just breathtaking. Uh, as soon as I saw it, this question popped into my head. Um, you know, if the indices go back to 1800, why does the longest quant back this go back 1925 at crisp? And by that time, what was kind of lucky in hindsight is that I built my first back this on 20 years of data. And that was part of my AIG experience. And then right away, we funded the strategy. So it was complete and it started to grow. And then we bought data back to, you know, this was first data set was 1980 to 2004. Then we bought 30 more years of data, got to 1950. And for me, those 30 additional years was like the closest I could get to out of sample experience, watching some factors crash and burn, others go flat, some continue working. I realized how much chaos there is in this whole factor modeling thing in real time that a uh, couple decades of data is just really not enough to know anything about the stuff we're doing. And I got obsessed with this extension idea. And then uh, the crisp data and back to 1925. And uh, on the background, also momentum, you know, the, the investment philosophy I was, well, that, that was within, I was the first quant inside a fundamental shop. And they were very comfortable with value and quality, these fundamentally sounding ideas. We innovated like crazy around it, but at least at essence, they sounded good to the fundamental PMs. Momentum was always like this thing where ah, it's too technical, it's just too technical. And then Eugene Fama, of course, in Chicago wouldn't approve it either, the academic quant. So I had this uh, dose of doubt, even though the results were 
really benefiting from adding momentum, both correlation-wise and return. And so I, I was just always thinking about momentum. When we got back through this data extension to 1925, all of a sudden I see that massive crash of momentum right after Great Depression in 1933, massive drawdown. And that was like a whoops moment. <laughs> like, because I'm living that history as if it's coming to me, as if it's future, not like some distant, you know, past I can ignore, it left a big impression that to discover that. And um, risk management, you know, expectations, how much weight do I put in momentum? I put a tiny, tiny weight. All my factors are very small weights. Um, and so when I saw the Jeremy Siegel's graph, it's right away, momentum, momentum. A, two questions. Is it real? You know, is it going to exist on this untouched data? Uh, then you can't say it's data mined. And B, how often does it crash? What does the true distribution look like? And by December 2008, like I mentioned, that's the first little run I, I, of backtest I did. Yale, um, International Finance Center there, Professor Gutzman, they very nicely just put on their website the stock level data. It's been sitting there since at least 2008, which is when I discovered it. it I think it's been there longer. And it was enough to run something really quick and dirty. But, you know, it was there. The spread was statistically positive, lower than recent history. And But the crashes just jump, jumped off the page. So once I got that little result and Chris Getzey award and saw that as my independent study advisor there, and right away, he's like, we can publish this. And then we went to um, GFD, Global Financial Data, and Richard Silla's website, who is another historian, also published for free his stock data, blended it all together, and we got uh, momentum. And then it took nine years to make it sound very academic and get all the <laughs> feedback and <laughs> all the other robustness tests. And, and uh, But crashes, you know, crashes are there. And then the momentum crashes, of course, became a popular topic. But, you know, the thing with long history is that uh, a lot of people either hate it or love it. Uh, either they say, why do you go so far back? It doesn't matter. Or they just obsess over it. I'm sort of like fascinated by it, but I take a moderate approach. So the things I like, the, I, I say long history helps us protect us from short history. Uh, short history can be really misleading, especially about risk and things like crashes. Uh, we definitely set very high expectations for factors, I believe both momentum and value and many others when we just studied 1980 or 1950 to 2000 where a lot of us grew up as quants and then 20 years later we're all like now struggling figuring it out but if you go back to 100 years 1950 to 2000 becomes this unique period um, and longer history has a more subtle uh way of seeing you know how good these things really are so momentum is uh perhaps a little bit easier to calculate because you're only looking at price when you're when you're doing that calculation value becomes more difficult because there's a fundamental component and you have to find that fundamental data and marry it to the price data and so the challenge i guess is you have book value data going back to uh 1920 in the Fama French, uh, I think it's roughly 1920 in the Fama French in the French data, and then um, how did you? M so there's there's two there's two uh, posts of yours that I just wanted to talk about. You, the the first one you go back to 1871, and that's using um, the data from I'm going to slightly I've just forgotten oh the cows data. So cows who famously uh, produced the cards that. Um, he looked at all of these, whether, whether anybody had any stock picking skill at all. I've written about cows before. Um, so how did you marry the cows data with the French data? Yeah, the fascinating thing about cows data is that they lost all the underlying stocks because as soon as oh, I had this did. idea at Wharton, the first place I went to was Yale. And I emailed them and the professor Getzman said, uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the index, the industry data is still there, thank God. But all that hard work of punching those cards in, like some... I mean, they blame some administrative assistant. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, there was no computers, so it just disappeared. Um, right. So uh, there is really a couple ways to go about it. If if we if some academics want to pick it up, and maybe somebody's already doing it right now, there is a way to go more fundamentally in terms of data collection and look at uh, company annual reports and just collect the data. 
that's really painful uh, for many reasons. Then there's a shorter, quicker way with Moody manuals, but they only go back um, beginning of 20th century. That's what Fama and French used to get back to 1925. By the way, I asked them also, excuse me, why they started in 1925. And they said, um, well, it was just a couple of years before the depression and we couldn't go too far back. And that's random, basically. <laughs> why it's like, but at least, uh, at least it captured that, at least in the, uh, in the price to book data, you capture the, the, the great depression, which I always looked at like it was this complete anomaly and uh, you, you look at the, the book value breaks down and then book value doesn't perform at all for this sort of 16-year period. And I just look at it as like one of those things you can potentially you can just dismiss that as something that might never happen again. But the interesting thing is when you include that long, longer data, it really becomes uh, clear how those – they're very rare, the events, but they, they are still pretty regular. That's absolutely right. Exactly. And in fact, if you think about the whole stock market – and things like a 60-40 portfolio, these insights really carry over. Before 2008, everybody didn't look, nobody looked at Great Depression drawdowns of a 60-40, which are like 65% for 60-40. And then the 30-something percent drawdown for 60-40 in 2008 pretty much cleaned up a lot of people and they had to rebalance or sell. So yeah, long history is fascinating if you start taking these things as repeatable events and hard to predict when. So in terms of your question, you know, value. So first, um, right, I'm sitting there in the spring of this year. Value is just getting, continues to get hammered. I'm feeling, uh, you know, bad for a lot of my friends who are value investors. And I'm, I don't do direct value like this investing right now. For, for the past 10 years, I don't do traditional factors at all in equities. But I'm still a big fan of that research and keeping track of them. And, um, and so value, right, was on my radar. Um, and uh, the, this industry data from Cowles is sitting there uh, filled with the P-E ratios, right? We have all this P-E ratio data there uh, for all the industries on their website. And they have total returns. And they have a lot of, I believe, 68 industries. So it's quite a wide number of industries that they provide. It almost becomes very related to stock-specific you know, at some point when you go really granular in the industry groups, um, it's almost uh, really kind of pure value in, in, in the sense of as a risk maybe factor more than alpha. So, yeah, it's using these PE ratios and the total returns for industries. And we rebalance uh, once a month. We rank on the PE. I do the lagging uh, so that the earnings are lagged um, to make sure the information was there hypothetically in this long, deep history. And so that, that data goes back from 1871 to 1925 when Fama French price to book uh, data starts. So that was the first uh, part that I did, right. And you construct, so the, the, the test is it's long short, long the, long the cheap third, short the expensive third, rebalance monthly, and you run it from 1871 to the present. And that, uh, the kind of interesting thing, so I looked at what happened in 1871. It's six years after the Civil War. Um, the Gilded Age starts in 1874. The telephone gets invented in 1876. The light bulb is invented in 1879. And uh, value investing works, despite all I this love, technology. I know. I love the way you put it. When I gave talks on the Momentum paper, which started in 1800, um, it's it was fascinating to say it was just a few years the stock market you know got started a few years after the revolution and the independence uh and then it's got started under a tree on wall street and uh the buttonwood <laughs> tree right the buttonwood agreement buttonwood trees a few dudes traded some stuff and then it moved to um this teen teen house i think it's called which was a gambling the ton the tontine the tontine coffee house and I love that whole gambling and investing right yeah. away. The one like during the day, you're a commodity trader. At night, you just yeah. <laughs> I love it too. I 100% agree. So um, the really interesting thing, I saw this in your blog post. You talked about Benjamin Graham referred to a backtest. And you think that he was talking about the Cal's data when he was talking about his backtest where he said he looked back about 50 years and he thought that value had produced about a 15% return. Presumably, that's the long side that he's talking about there. Right, 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 right. I mean, that's when uh, it appears to be some of that early backtesting is taking place. 
I'd be shocked if they didn't know each other. I, I, we can ask, you know, Jamie, uh, the, uh, the guy who does all the all the actual historical look up the evidence in the newspaper. Um, Catherwood, I think, is his last name. If I said right. right. But, um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm sure the, they were sort of familiar with each other's work, and uh, I don't know if he used exactly his data or not, but it, it appears to be at least in spirit that's the period that was being looked at, and. You know, he, um, it's sort of like, in many ways, echoes how we as quants around 2000 were backtesting a really golden age of, of value. And if you happen to have very few drawdowns and then you got started, you're going to have a lot of conviction in value. And then whatever happens next will either help a lot or, or not. Uh, Graham had to live through some drawdowns really early on in his investing career. Uh, but then they had this really nice long run, and then he was able to liquidate sort of on the top, and then Buffett took over and also had this this really nice three four decades, very nice you know on the upside we can argue there's a lot of tweaks and things they do obviously and expertise and depth and leverage and quality, but on the downside when you just have like value as a risk factor more less of an alpha idea more just risk correlation and uh, that really uh, helps when you don't have that crash for like 30 40 50% crash for several decades uh, and now it's coming back it's interesting to contrast their careers cuz Graham started Graham Graham had been going for a little while but the the great depression and the crash were closer to the beginning of his career and exactly. then he had what you describe as that sort of golden age of golden age probably for both factors right for, for for value and momentum, but but value obviously relevant to Graham, and then Buffett begins in in the fifties, I think, and he gets that similarly gets that uh, golden age for most of his career. But now he's encountered what is uh, it, it, at least as bad as so that the worst one that you had in that data was nineteen oh four. I think it's the long short factor draws down fifty nine percent, and now we're we're sort of I think that. The, the te- I don't know where your data ends, but it, I think it's May or April or something like that. It, that, that was about a 59% drawdown then too. So are we, are we through the, uh, the 1904 trough yet? I think we're really, really close. So that, there's two posts. The first post just uses industry data. Even if I'm on French, I use their industry data, which are price to books. Uh, and I connect it to Carl's price to earnings, but it's all thirds. Right, the the max drawdown was 1904, 59% long short industries, which is crazy, right? If you think about this industry spread, the 2000s were negative 42% spread. That makes sense. The dot com uh, right before the bubble burst, uh, that one recovered really quickly, and that's what we remember. That's when the value came back really strong, and you felt really justified and validated after three years of tech pain. You know to get that back but now it's been really going on since 2006 plus or minus and we are it's been in these waves but recently it's really nose diving and i haven't updated it through july or, or august the industry i mean june but i believe we're gonna we're very close to that 59 percent max industry level crash by itself right it's 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 crazy to be living through it so you had some really interesting findings. The, the one thing that you find over the full data set, values positive, uh, generates about a 7%. And this is, this is long, short, market neutral, weighted equally to both sides of the, uh, of the trade. Drawdown, the worst drawdown is the 59% in 1904, which we're sort of confronting now. It took 14 years mm-hmm. for that to resolve itself. So we're, we're sort of 14 years or maybe a little bit longer into this one is that does that mean yeah. we're getting close to the end of it well so it took 14 years yes from the bottom to um the 14 yes the it, the the maximum drawdown 1904 took 14 years to build up and then another nine years to recover so that's that's the length it's long and yeah this time around we're also 14 years and really close to this 59 you know, looking at this data, and my blog say this, it's not a very sophisticated statement just to say, look, it happened in the past, it always means reverts, but it's just so tempting to say, hey, it's going to be reverts. So, you know, if I were to Bayesian adjust my strength of my belief, this is the only input I have. 
except the other one being that if things get cheap enough eventually capital just has to flow there because of expected returns get high and you just can't have um this mispricing if it does get to that more last forever but yeah it looks like we're we're there but you know people debate this all the time why is this happening and uh, I have some thoughts on that, and I've been actually designing strategies to prevent that for the last 10 years, prevent the, this kind of fundamental value that's already published and everybody knows about. Well, what causes it, and, and how, do you, how do you avoid it? Right. Well, so, you know, it's hard to tie it to long history because I have no idea. Well, actually, so the OSAM guys, I read their piece. That was really interesting. This industrial revolutions right. concept where you have a massive shift. Um, they count, I think, five of those revolutions. Those periods line up pretty interestingly with the even the extended value uh, tests I have. That they, And the way I interpret it is just the value of intangible capital becomes really much higher. Intellectual capital, IP, brands, um, you know, innovation, customer satisfaction, all these things, they eventually feed to the fundamentals but now when they get priced a lot sooner and earlier, it's much less about the tangible uh, capital, like book values, but also even the earnings. You can see a lot of uh, negative earnings are still getting bid up. Uh, of course, it's always two sides. At some point, it does become overvalued in a bubble, and maybe we're already there. But during the last, uh, at least since this 2006 period, I think that's one factor, is that things uh, that are part of companies' value have become very different uh, than than more tangible value. So, w one of the questions that I had looking at looking at if you just referring to the Jamie Catherwood OSAM piece where they looked at that they said there were sixteen years uh, and I think that they said it was the, the the sort of rollout popularization of the automobile which meant that they needed to build out the infrastructure for cars they needed roads they needed uh, fueling stations and so on and they said that that's sort of comparable to the current situation except you substitute the internet for, for for the car so you have you build out the infrastructure and then you have these layers built on top so does it start in in, in 2006 or does it start in 1999 and we had this little catch-up midway through but now we're yeah. maybe much longer into this it's a good question you could might as well because if you go to um that far it, it if you basically ignore the 2001, two and three, where value really caught up and recovered its drawdown, at least some, if you look at industries, which is maybe slightly different from, probably gonna be a little different from stock level. But if we just keep talking about the, the very granular number of industries and the back test, that goes all the way back to mid eighties, the drawdown. Oh, really? So maybe you can even say that, uh, yeah, the entire 90s, and, and we're still in that 30-year window of transitioning to the digital world, and of course now it's accelerating. So the last thing that you discuss in that paper, you say that there are uh, a number of reasons why people think that value works, and you, you, I think that you sort of said I don't have any view on whether it's a risk argument or whether it's a behavioral argument, but do you, do you have do you have any thoughts why why does value work? <laughs> You know, this, uh, the, the risk story is very good in many ways, academically, conceptually, is when about all factors, value and momentum and anything else, even the stock market. You know, the premium story, compensating for risk, we all speak that language. It's very good for risk management. It's very good for diversification. It's very good for attribution. Like we can decompose Buffett's returns and like have these cool attribution models. And we've gotten really good at it. It's also very engineering friendly and it just fits a lot of math and models. But I think that there was a little, I mean, there's a big risk of um, saying that if something is risky in terms of covariance, there's correlation, we're gonna tie it to some theory that there's a compensation necessary for that risk and correlation. And then we're going to say we're going to put it in a portfolio in a massive way because we expect it just like the stock market to deliver an equity premium. We're going to have these other factors delivering premium because, look, they, they crash and they correlate the stocks that have those exposures correlate with each other. So they influence the risk matrix for sure. But is it really like safe to really count on those premium always being there? And I always go back to like being the quant. I started in 2004. 
building the first qual models were launched in 2005. By that time, 75% of the market was in the hands of top three players. And the whole quant space was less than 10% of the whole industry. 90% was fundamental. And within that 10%, 75% was the top three quant firms. Um, and we were doing a lot of stuff. We weren't doing one factor with a simple formula, give it to everybody. And it was brutal to compete. And then the top three kind of blew up in 07, and then again in 09. And then the whole quant industry went dark for a while until this revival through smart beta, enhanced you know, um, factor investing, and ETF transparency, liquidity, all that story came back, which in one way, we're all happy as these old <laughs> quants saying, hey, quant is popular. On the other hand, I was just going, oh my God, how is this going to play out? Because all the sophistication we used to have didn't beat index. Our strategy had 125 factors back then, and it continued to outperform for 15 years. It, it, it did positive 2007, uh, positive 2009, information ratio one. So I kind of like navigated this turmoil of both my firm falling apart, market falling apart, quants falling apart and just focused on innovation, innovation, innovation. Um, and so, you know, yeah, that's why a lot of my blogs come out of all that stuff. But uh, why value works, why anything else works, and sharing with you how I was discovering the earlier history as if it was live and out of sample, you become really humble and you kind of start to figure out how many ideas do I need to have? And how accurate are they gonna be? What is my real goal here? Is it is it to beat my competitors, or is it just to at least have one basis point above the benchmark? That was my goal in, back then. Now it's different, but back then, um, you know, I was a young quant. There was nobody above me. Or I was on the on the hook. So I just said, I don't really care about how much I beat this benchmark. I just need to at least one basis point a year to say I'm positive. And it ended up being hundred basis points. I didn't care if my individual idea was right or wrong, or if I'm out in French would laugh at something I did there or I didn't have to you know, write a dissertation over it or do a mathematical proof. It was just kind of like intuitive gut. If, um, if I think of it and I test it and it's positive, that's good enough. Take it in. Worst case, it's going to dilute the positive ideas with random noise. Absolutely worst case is going to flip and become, you know, from a positive T-stat to a negative T-stat, which is really, really unlikely. Most likely, if I data mine too much, it's going to become random. But because I'm not just pressing buttons, I'm constantly thinking, reading, and innovating. Uh, there's going to be enough of these gems. I just don't know. You know, if you take a bunch of sand, which one is a diamond and which one is a sand? Only time will tell, as I discovered with these uh, extended decades backwards. So I had to have enough ideas in there to continue staying positive, and uh, with value. Uh, you know, we've seen this with quality. Around 2000, there was a lot of literature and Sloan and um, those guys on quality factors, and it kind of went flat for a while. And I remember uh, looking at that, and, and it was really like an inverted hockey stick. Like it, it's not even like if you did a long-term back test, it's the scariest type of uh, outcome. It's one thing where it just keeps zigging and zagging, and then you add other stuff to diversify. And the other one is it's pretty straight, and then it just goes. <laughs> Uh, horizontal. And why is that? It's just been flooded with capital. So that was my uh, thinking. Yes, a lot of quants were doing it. Um, and so part of it is also being a little contrarian, or let's say even unpopular, you know, contrarian, I think gets misused a lot. It's like you're just contrarian to the market prices. But con even contrarian can either be popular or unpopular view in given times. Being unpopular is really, really hard. That's when you say something and people look at you like you're crazy. Why are you doing this? It's much easier. Like it's very popular in the spring of this year to be saying it's all going to hell. And I have that instinct. I have that bias. Um, it's a contrarian view when the market keeps going up. So with quality, I, um, I looked at it. It wasn't hurting our models. It wasn't adding to our models for that early period. And I then decided to double down research and we went really granular into the balance sheets and cash flows and modeled very subtle things put it all back together quality 2.0 back this got better and then i just said if people are going to hate it and see this hockey stick and pull money out we want to be there plus it's defensive and and then around 08 09 that and actually for many years later that that part of the model 
um, delivered a ton of value. So right now, you know, with value, if you're a value investor, I just say double down your research, double down um, your um, kind of forward-looking. Definitely don't don't pivot out to growth or anything like that at this point. Um, you know, my, my thinking led me to intangible capital in terms of value for quite some time, and I think that's where I'm very comfortable. But uh, let's say if there was a more fundamental element there, like direct, then it's just about, at this point, I think, A, waiting for mean reversion, just natural cycles, B, waiting for enough people to abandon it, which I think we started to see at Blackhawk. Yeah. That was fun. <laughs> yes, capitulation. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then there's a question about just like long run mean to the whole thing. Um, that's the third question. But first, surviving it, tweaking it, getting the upside when it happens. Um, you know, at this point, I would say the odds for the upside for traditional systematic value is much higher than the downside. Of course, very famous people recently made the same statement and got their face ripped <laughs> off. <laughs> You're referring to Cliff with his. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Valuesberg address and so on. Uh, the the really one of the, the the second post that you put up, which I think is kind of uh, fascinating. This is the one where you take Gertzman's data and you look and you go back to 1825 and just just so folks know what was happening then. Charles Babbage invents his difference machine. John Quincy Adams is the president of the United States of America. Um, Vanderbilt has the new industry of the day, which is steamships. He's operating a fleet of steamships and he goes on to become one of the wealthiest men in the States. It's regarded as the first industrial revolution. So it's one of those early um, early periods of technological advancement that potentially is very bad for value. It seems like that, that that's the thing that hurts value the most. And so the way that, you, the way that you've constructed the data through that earlier period um, and you say that's a very rough approximation of the value factor. You, you're forced to use the dividend yield. So how do you adjust when you're using the dividend yield? And what, what's the what's wrong with using the dividend yield? Right, right, right. So both of those data sets are Gertzman, the price data and the dividend data. Dividend data is annual. The number of companies that have dividend um, data is much, much smaller than the monthly price data. And you can't really tell whether the companies that don't have a dividend don't have it because they didn't pay it or because they just didn't find it. So the safest thing to do is limit the entire universe just to dividend-paying stocks that Gertzman identified, and that becomes our universe. It's much smaller. It's uh, 256 companies that are in that. Um, 1825 is when they start. 1871 is when they end. Do you have an idea? Were there other companies that weren't paying dividends? Were there listed companies? Do you have any sort of idea what the, how many of those there were? In their data set, there is, I think, a total of, um, I might be wrong, 671 companies with price data. But then, of course, global financial data has a lot more companies in there. But that data set you have to purchase. And I've worked with that data set when I was a warden. Uh, and so there's actually a lot more companies. And you know, one just as a side note, what's interesting is when the crisp data starts, uh, the number of companies in that first month, and second month, and first few years is so much smaller than when global financial data ends in that same period. You have like multiples of number of securities. Same so they thing. just weren't tracking them. They just missed a f missed them when they started tracking them. Yeah, survivorship bias issues and all that stuff. So all of this is highly, highly approximate. You know, what I get out of it is like um, just general patterns of drawdowns, correlations. Uh, but interestingly, the average return, the spread here, is still very similar to the other periods. It came out of 3.7% per year for this 25 to 1871. And then comparing to the 19, 1872 to 1926, it's also 3.9% a year. That's industry spread. And then from our French, is 2.7. Actually, it's lower a little bit. Depends how you look at it. I try to make it most consistent uh, definitions for each period. So so I guess there's a, two, there's a few like philosophical questions. Why use a very long time period to... Uh, what, what does that what does that give you? Right, so uh, it gives me the I, well, I believe the first thing it gives me is a better sense of the truer distribution of whatever we're looking at. 
Uh, we all know things are not normal in finance, even the basic S&P 500 returns that are not perfectly normal. If you look at the left tail, which is what we worry about, the crashes, uh, we know they're not normal. And so uh, if we just look at short history, we'll totally miss them, most likely, especially if we accept the strategy and start investing using the strategy. It's very likely that the left tail was not in the recent past, unless you're very unpopular and you just kind of go at it. Um, and so, right, uh, studying with, starting with momentum, when I discovered the first left tail in uh, 1933 and from our French data, I just got obsessed. Like, what else, what other left tails can we find? And nothing like adding 200 years of history or 125 years of history will gives it a, a shot. The second is uh, this thing that keeps, um, you know, when I was at, at, at college, I was more a theoretical econ guy. Definitely didn't believe it was possible to beat the market. Like that was actually, I was very influenced by markets are efficient and forget about it. <laughs> and then when I got that first job as a quant where I had to come up with a model to beat the market, I was terrified. It was almost out of fear that I just kept like innovating. Uh, so this idea of data mining, uh, were these factors data mined and are they real when you add untouched kind of this pre it's not pristine in terms of quality but it's pristine in terms of nobody messed around with those 130 years of data uh, and you test something and it comes back with a positive statistical t-stat it's like whew, this thing is real i can almost touch it like at least it, it might be dead now but at least it existed and i'm not just miraged by <laughs> Uh, somebody, you know, fitting in history. And so that, those are the two major, major reasons. We, uh, you know, if I continue working on it, I mean, studying when something happens, like a crash, and trying to explain other factors in the, in the macroeconomy or innovation or industrial you know, revolutions or whatever it is um, that help um, understand these spreads. But I think it's very hard to time them just in production point of view even to implement these trades on uh, timing factors very hard to give up a lot of correlation benefits because they don't correlate so if you start overweighting one you're just sacrificing a lot of diversification and then that's not even to mention the, the fact that uh, predicting when one does better than the other is really really hard so I, I like history from it gives me confidence about the left tail and the thing with left tail so my whole philosophy just for a second about um uh, what is risk, what is volatility, it comes in here. And that's what drives two centuries investments, if I remember with. I think, um, I, from I started, you know, I think about it as an asset owner, less than as an asset manager, making products, raising assets, that's all great. As an asset owner, my own capital is all the strategies. What is risk for me? If volatility is different, volatility is something that's moving up and down. If I understand it, if it's expected, if it's normal, I don't sweat things. Risk is when I give up on something. Risk is when I have to change a strategy. I'm gonna lock in permanently some uh, losses. I'm gonna give up the unrealized gains and cancel out long run compounding, start over. That's, you know, risk is when you're lost, you don't know what to do, you give up. It's kind of behavioral for me, but um, looking at left tails, those crashes for value momentum, or in my case, asset allocation like 60-40, or uh, other stuff, I want to really put in that worst case as if it is really a worst case. Like 60-40 portfolio worst case has been almost 70%. It doesn't mean the future can't be worse. Hopefully it's better, but it can be even worse than 70. But if I can't even stomach 70% loss and statically keep rebalancing, you know, when that's happening, it means you are like have to be selling bonds and buying stocks more and more during that depression, let's say. If I can't honestly stomach it and I have a long-term investment horizon and I want my capital to move through decades or centuries for my kids to keep doing this, you know, I got to put in these long-term expectations that history gives me as actually they could happen tomorrow or they could happen 200 years from now, I don't know. Uh, and building around that makes you more resilient and less um, there's less risk in the system, that risk in terms of giving up. And uh, then you set up these expectations based on those bad case scenarios. And then you try, if you're, if real life, you're, you're still within those expectations, then you're, you can sleep at night, it's just volatility. That's the kind of experience I want to have versus kind of 
setting up very great high expectations, uh, low risk, low volatility, low drawdowns, and then being constantly surprised, like this stopped working, that stopped working, what do I do? It, it, it turns on this like survival brain, uh, which is you know either regretting stuff or is worried, fear or greed. The words I like is anxiety and regret, more kind of, and uh, that's all this primal brain and when it turns on, it just doesn't let you go. You're going to be feeling it. It's something you have to do. Something we see people doing that all the time across levels of experience, committees, all the way to retail. Uh, and this year really amplifies both for value and asset allocation. That static, this problem. And so the more I can be in my kind of frontal lobe, the executive brain, uh, and all this stuff helps me stay there. Being rules-based, systematic study long-term history, uh, be comfortable with being unpopular, um, not being too afraid of having original ideas because at the worst case, they're going to be random noise, you know, versus popular ideas at the worst case get crowded and then you get this big capital movement. So there's that correlation with other managers. So you could actually swing from a positive T-stat to a negative T-stat. Um, so that, it's a long way of answering why do I study long-term history. I don't obsess about it too much. You know, it's just one of the tools I have, but it fits nicely within the risk management approach. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, just just looking back uh, over the 200-year history that you've created for value, um, what what are the takeaways for for you? What what sort of what what surprised you? What uh, what can what can we learn from that 200-year period? For example, one I would have thought was that a 59% drawdown in a long short was entirely possible, and here we are, we're we're about to confront it again. So it's a real, it's not just a, it's not a theoretical um, possibility. It's a very real, uh, we're, and we're living through it right now. Exactly, exactly. I mean, this is when I, it's very similar to momentum. Actually, so what's shocking is how similar it is to my momentum experience when I looked at those results in 08 and then 09, and boom, there's this massive crash that you never thought you'd see, but you were afraid you will. Same thing's happening with value right now. Uh, so that kind of, and, and right, you take all that long run history and you think that's really relevant. We're living through something very similar. It was so tempting to say it's totally irrelevant. The second thing is that was surprising is how safe the this second half of 20th century for value was and you have these great value investors that are like literally riding a wave of course they outperform traditional value and add a ton of value on top of that and there's many other reasons they succeeded uh, one of the important ones being the psychological one i believe when you really go deep into something you're going to hold on uh, much more in terms of that risk right of giving up and they didn't give up in the 90s they kept going they got paid but uh, zooming out there was definitely a lot of positive wind in uh, pushing them in, in this value and now you see the cracks and not even the, the cracks but the pain the real deal when you have a 60 percent drawdown in value uh, you start thinking about permanent loss of capital and um, because things are getting priced in that are looking really really scary so I think that's a real test for a lot of the value folks out there, and I, I um, you know, I sympathize with that. Yeah, I love the way you frame it up. You said uh, 1940 to 2006 was exceptionally safe, uh, and yeah. I, I love that. You, you mean exceptionally? You, you mean that in its literal sense? And then uh, what the the takeaway probably should be that value investing is not safe. That you can <laughs> you can expect these gigantic drawdowns every now and again. If you're thinking about volatility, absolutely not safe. And, you know, that's where the risk premium argument often, I think, is just wrong when people say, well, it's volatile, it crashes, hence it must be risk premium. That's like a very slippery slope, um, theoretically, academically. But on the other hand is if your process is value investing, you just feel great owning undervalued companies, you have a process to do it, and then you look at 200 years and say, yep, once every decade, uh, one decade out of a century, it's a 59% crash. I'm okay with it. You know, we'll just get through it. As an asset owner, you can do it. If you really believe it, right, and you and you feel great, who cares? You just, you know, it's still total return. I mean, if you're doing long short, it's really painful, but you can still hold on to that crash. If you're doing long only, you still have this 
just general market data pulling you up and you're lagging S&P for a while, who cares? As an asset manager, it becomes a different story. There's career risk, there's clients getting patient, um, and all that. You know, one big thought of the, I'm working recently, expressing to people finally, just to share this, is we uh, just like people either love or hate long-term history, people tend to split in love or hate active versus passive. You know, they just fall into these two camps. And I really they love alpha or they hate alpha. They don't think it's volatile. Or they love beta or they hate beta. I think both are really, as an asset owner, that's an asset management headache. As an asset owner, yes, those are useful risk management concepts, but really I care about total return with survivable cross risk. Survival meaning you know, no margin calls and I don't give up on the strategy. That's the main thing. Right. And uh, the total return can come, when it's coming both from alpha and beta, that's even better. There's two sources. And if for a decade it's all beta and for another decade it's all alpha, it looks like a horrible asset management product. But as a total return concept, it's great. You know, it's uh, why not? And uh, because you're sticking with something, right? Versus just having a passive index and then you still give up. Somebody comes in, like with Jeremy Siegel, uh, he was in the stocks for the long run. His book, my fan, you know, my uh, I loved it. And then he moves everything to dividend investing, and then to 60-40, and now 75-25. And there's very strong intellectual reasons, but um, for me, that's risk of investing. You start on path A, and then you're on path B, and then you're on path C. Um, so to avoid all this, uh, you know, my my takeaway from from all of this is, yeah, studying history, building your personal resilience. And, and just keep keep doing what you're doing. And then, I mean, evolution and innovation is also part of my DNA. Uh, but so if you blend things well, you continue to innovate without having to switch what you were doing. But um, it's another misconception. I think people are just obsessed with investment process. And it's sort of has been these safe guardrails for people, which were good. I guess investment management back in the day, you could just like, switch around and go crazy and so all the asset owners put on this tracking error and benchmark and don't switch your style stick with the process stick with the process that's all great but that's all risk management uh you know but where's innovation in all of this where's your edge how do you keep moving it forward uh so that's balancing all that and it's never black and white one way or another uh, if you overdo one of those things you're going to get hurt but as an optimizer you know you're pulling the different forces together a good balance, like our strategies, when I say they're balanced, there's really this battle going on inside of it, like sell, 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 buy, 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 and optimizer just finds that um, point on the utility function, even if there's some noise there, I like it when there's tension. So innovation versus investment process is one of those things that are uh, pulling and pushing but I think that's where some of the success can be found. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I just wanted to uh, get your comment on that. that finally, uh, you have this great line about value. You say value has a long history of never-ending drawdowns and tiny intervals of outperformance. <laughs> Is that value? <laughs> that's value. It's, it's like a it's like a melancholy novel, you know, like, <laughs> you might go to the ocean and start fishing for this big whale. When is my glory day of the drawdown is over and, and it feels so good. Right. So I think the, the idea is to disconnect the, this emotional brain, you know, that feels so good when things are working and just to uh, set things sailing. And there will be some really, really awesome periods for value ahead of us uh, that will, I'm sure, get us out of this drawdown and generate positive return. I'm like, I'm really sure about that the question is when and how much patience you need until then and yes uh value especially but everything like stock market i obsess with drawdowns because again uh, as an asset owner that's what you feel you see your highest point recently and you're like "Ooh, i have this you don't look at calendar year i mean you do but secondary calendar year all this there's a lot of ways to show performance that feels appealing to a client if you're an asset manager but at the end of the day is if you're an asset owner and you log in and you see the highest value that you lock it in that's drawdown and pretty much we'll spend vast majority of our time in drawdown mode um, and that's the time where we stick with the process and continue to innovate and then when the winds align and we reach the new heights but surprisingly that's when you're living month by month year by year that's how it feels but as soon as you zoom out uh, 
that disappears and you just start to see if you pick the right general horses you know, and you're not giving up so the risk is not ruining your your you're switching you're not switching then the compounding kicks in and like the clients we have that have been with us for a longer time now uh things scare them a lot less a they know our strategies are working as expected but b because their starting point is now has compounded into something material the drawdowns even of the same magnitude but now feel less scary on the cumulative line so a lot of it i think is about your brain and how you set up the scorecards and we have this awesome way to customize scorecards that have multiple ways for you to win and you can tell us no well, this doesn't apply but it's about holistically measuring success not in any sort of narrow way but it's getting you from a to point b which is decades from now with all this uncertainty uh there's going to be a lot of drawdowns and they uh it's like a rainy day you're not going to get too depressed uh, and give up on where you're going just because it's raining i mean sometimes you might change your schedule but if there's a big storm <laughs> like this march uh it was definitely a lot of self-awareness time you know just like even everything's working but you still feel the primal brain or whatever you call it, yeah. the feeling brain kick in and you call your friends you call the pros you call the experts you kind of like shake things out and then you keep going even even when everything's risk managed uh and we've seen this before etc but uh yeah drawdowns are the the pain of our existence and we have to deal with our pain in any any way we can to to keep going yeah i think that i think that seeing them seeing them happen historically is certainly a way to prepare yourself mentally at least for for the ones that you're currently enduring or ones that will come into the future it's absolutely fascinating Michael. if folks want to get in contact with you or follow along with what you're doing how do they go about doing that thanks yeah i have a blog and a website two centuries.com and it's two centuries.com and my email is mikhail m-i-k-h-a-i-l at two centuries.com uh, we're having a lot of conversations with our readers. There's all sorts of exciting research projects, consulting things that are coming alive. And uh, I definitely, part of my passion is to help the industry get better. You know, I've been in finance for a long time. From day one, I was going to conferences and seeing things and I just wasn't inspired by traditional quant finance or finance in general. Uh, like I would maybe look at other industries and feel all like, oh, there's cool stuff happening there. There's a movement, there's purpose. And so that's, that definitely drives what I do, and that's why I kind of try to share as much as I can and collaborate uh, with other, you know, buy side even firms that we do more um, embargoed, but it's still IP sharing, just so we all can get better. There's a lot of win-win situations from collaboration more in this industry, more creativity, more innovation, uh, and learning from each other. And I really like your work, what you do. Oh, thank really you. Fascinating. I've, I've been listening to a lot of them and seeing you on Twitter. And it, it definitely, that that's the kind of thing that feels uh, that was missing uh, for a long time. And now it's getting more democratized, let's say this. Uh, but there's this great benefits of this community and you, you kind of learning from each other. And there's more purpose behind all of that, I think. And I, I really enjoy that. Well, it's very kind. Mikhail Semenov, Two Centuries Investments, thank you very much. Thanks, Toby. Have a good day. <laughs>